If you have a Bible, turn to Acts 20. And if you need a Bible, wave at Bud. The conference was fantastic, by the way. The teaching, it was five or six of us that were sharing the teaching, really different people, super different personalities in all different corners of Scripture, and yet the Holy Spirit knit it together, and, it, and we didn't coordinate anything, but the Holy Spirit knit it together. It all made sense when we were done. Worship was great. Hector was one of the worship leaders, and he picked up like three or four new songs that he's excited to bring in here. The fellowship, I think, more than anything, though, was special. Just the Spirit of God moving um, amongst the different churches. The koinonia was real. Um, Pastor Dave Fitzgerald from St. Louis sends his love and sends his greetings. Pastor Dave did our men's retreat last year, um, and he can't wait for uh, the Lord to give us an opportunity to minister together again. Patty Height from Out of Egypt Ministries, I was we were that close to having her um, able to share this morning. Twice, two different times it was going to work out. And, and then both times the Lord said, no, that, that's, that's for later. But we're praying about a, a place on the calendar where we can invite Patty out to, to share her testimony and, uh, and to further equip us uh, to love people in Jesus' name. Ken Johnson, part of the, part of the fellowship up uh, at Calvary Johnson County, was last year. We, we were trying to figure it out, and it's probably a decade ago that he came down and, and, and shared some prophetic insights. He's been doing a lot of research into the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, he shared some neat things up there. I want to get him down um, to, to share with us uh, the fruit of some of his research. So I'm leaving, and I'm leaving things out, but I'll, I'll send the link to the, to the conference uh, as soon as it's I don't know what they do, render and master and upload and all of the things. Um, if you're not in Simple Church, that's a good excuse to, to make sure your email is in our church directory, Simple Church. Pastor Rob knows how to do that. I don't, um, but he does see him. And I'll also let you know once next year's date is announced, because it's well worth taking time off, scheduling vacation if you need to. Um, if, if next year's anything like this year, and, and, and I, I think it's going to be better. But speaking of time off of work, I'm taking some. Uh, Anna and I are, by God's grace. We're taking Michaela back to school, uh, senior year at Evangel University. We're dropping her off Wednesday, and then we're headed to the East Coast uh, to do a thing we do every year. Some of you know about this with, with friends out there. But we are leaving you in good hands. Pastor Chris Flynn, the assistant pastor at Calvary Hutchinson, Luke's assistant, is going to be sharing on Wednesday, this Wednesday, a message the Lord laid on his heart from Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters to seven churches that Jesus gives us. Uh, so Chris will have some neat things to share. And then next weekend, Pastor Josh and I think Stephanie and the kids are all coming up from Rogers, Arkansas. And it's always a blessing to welcome them back. Uh, Pastor Josh asked if he could celebrate communion with, with everyone. And so we won't be. It's the first Sunday of the month, but we're going to defer to next week because Pastor Josh asked for that privilege. But Acts, uh, Acts chapter 20. No slides this morning, just it was a week and the conference and the things and something had to give, which means no maps. Sorry, Grayson. But uh, this week we don't actually need maps. It's the first time in a couple of weeks that Paul hasn't been traveling 
We left him last week in Miletus, and we're going to leave him in Miletus when we're done this morning. He's on his way, if you recall, uh, the end of his third missionary journey. He's headed back to Jerusalem. He's made it as far as Miletus, and he's taking advantage of a layover there to have a conversation, really to, to, to preach a sermon to his friends from Ephesus. He, either there was a layover that was scheduled, the ship was just you know, made port and hey, find something to do for a couple days because we have to offload cargo, um, onload cargo, or maybe Paul pulled a favor with the ship captain and, and he engineered this, we don't know. But, but they're there for a couple days and Paul says, if we're gonna be here for a couple days, I've gotta talk to the elders at the church of Ephesus one more time. There's some things I must share with them. And so we got to, halfway through Paul's farewell address, if you want to call it that. Uh, and then we hit pause for the baptism, which, which we were reminded of earlier. When we left off, Acts 20, we got as far as verse 21. And Paul was reminding his, his fellow elders, his brothers from Ephesus, how he'd lived among them. Not, not that he'd lived among them. It wasn't that long ago they remembered but how, in what manner he'd lived among them. He'd lived a life, we talked about this last week, saturated with Christ. A life empowered by Christ, a life that left the fragrance of Christ in its wake. And that was a cool time to stop and do the baptism because what is baptism? It's a physical representation. It's a symbol of how we are dead in our sin and then resurrected and saturated with Christ. So physical saturation with water, saturation with Christ. So we baptized at that point, but, but because we stopped where we stopped, you might have been thinking to yourself, Paul, you're kind of bragging. And that's not how he normally rolls. He's, he, in, in the first part of the, of the address, he's saying some pretty lofty stuff. And, 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 at that point, in the, in the middle of it, we might scratch our heads and say, why are you reading us your resume? Because, he goes on to say, verse 22, because I'm leaving. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except, I know this much, the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, everywhere I go, everywhere I stop, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Paul had heard from the Lord, was hearing from the Lord, again and again it seems, that the ministry that he was anticipating in Jerusalem wasn't going to go quite according to plan. Now, we're not sure how Paul was receiving that insight from the Lord. Was it a vision? Was it a dream? Was it a person with a word of knowledge? It could be any of those. It could be all of those. God used all of those things in Paul's life at different points. But one way or another, Paul knew this, but, he says, verse 24, it doesn't change anything. But none of these things move me, Paul says, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We've heard lots of sermons preached on that verse, haven't we? You spend any time in any church, someone's going to preach from that text. And a lot of the messages that I've heard revolve around the idea of sacrifice in ministry, because that's sort of implicit in what Paul just said, right? I remember one pastor 
um, built on this verse, and, and he quoted on the way to getting where he was going. He quoted from Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew, you, you might remember from the book God's Smuggler. I think there was a movie as well. He founded the ministry Open Doors that smuggled Bibles into Eastern Europe during the Cold War. He smuggled Bibles in behind the Iron Curtain, and he did it all kinds of different ways. At one point, he, he, he got um, whaling boats and wrapped Bibles in, in thick waterproof wrapping. And when the tide was, was going in, they'd throw Bibles overboard so that the tide would wash them ashore. But, but one, one pastor I remember quoted Brother Andrew um, in, in, ex, in, in doing exposition of verse 24. Perhaps the Muslims, that in, the people groups that inhabited the areas where they were smuggling these Bibles, will never take us seriously, Christians. Will not believe that we believe what we claim to believe until they witness that we're willing to fill up their prisons. That we're willing to pay a price, that we're willing to share Jesus even at great cost. That's a powerful idea. It's a thoroughly biblical idea, right? Paul said, I won't offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. It's a noble idea. I'm not sure it's exactly where Paul's coming from here, though. Paul's not going to Jerusalem pursuing any particular ministry. He's not going there with any specific end in mind, any, any particular people group that God has burdened him to reach. He's just going in obedience. God, you've called me to go there to do ministry there, and whatever you have for me there is whatever you have for me there. If there's consequences, well, then there are consequences. Paul knew probably better than any of us God isn't looking for dramatic ministry necessarily. Not always, not all the time, not from every one of us. He's not looking for, for big, uh, expansive gestures, dramatic acts of self-immolation in the name of the Lord. No, he's looking for surrender. He's looking for obedience. And Paul is saying to his friends, that's all I've ever tried to do. That's, that's everything I've ever tried to do to be, that's all that you ever saw me be about in our time together, seeking God and then waiting on God and listening for God and then when I hear from God, obeying God. That's all any of us can do. That's all, that's all God is looking for for many of us. And that's all he'll reward us for. Not the dramatic things that we have in mind, but sometimes the, 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 the seemingly trivial, except there's no such thing in God's economy, but the small things, the unseen things that he's prepared for us. But we get to verse 24, it still sounds like Paul's bragging. Paul, why are you telling us this? I'm telling you because I'm trying to tell you I'm leaving, Paul says. I'm going. And, and, and we can understand him wanting to clarify that point because he said goodbye once already. And then he said, well, hang on. Come meet me in Miletus, and I want to I I say goodbye one more time. There's some, just a few more things I want to... But, but this, is, this is it. This, is, this, this next time, this is going to be the last time. And his point is that he's leaving, but the people are still going to be there. He's leaving, but the need is still going to be there. And he's saying to the elders, I'm leaving, but you need to be there. And you need to be prayed up. 
You need to be there and you need to be ready while you're there because resistance, opposition, spiritual warfare are going to really be there. Verse 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. I'm serious this time, Paul says. This really is goodbye. <clears throat> Ironically, it turns out that it isn't. We read in First and Second Timothy, Paul does return, if not to Ephesus specifically, at least to the area. But he didn't know that. He didn't expect it even a little bit. What have we read in Romans and Acts both? Next stop, Jerusalem. After that, Rome. After that, he's planning to go to Spain. So he's exhorting his fellow elders. He's exhorting his brothers in ministry. You guys are going to have to pick up some slack. Verse 26, Therefore I testify you to this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. For three years, he's going to say in a minute, and that's confusing because wasn't it like two years and three months? Yeah, but a partial year when in, in Jewish expression would be referred to as three years for, for parts of three calendar years. I put it all out there, Paul says. I've laid it on the line. I've, 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 I've let it all hang out and it's cost me. It's cost me friends. It's cost me health. It's cost me in, in, in every way. And I did it everywhere. Anyway. Share the gospel, made disciples, evangelized the lost, built the church, taught believers. And the work's not done. I've done everything that I could do. I've done everything that God called me to do. But the work's not done. Because the work's never done until Jesus returns, right? And he's saying to these guys, don't expect to coast. I'm done, but the work's not done, and you're not done. Verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves. You see how every statement builds on the last. Therefore, and therefore, and therefore. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church belongs to God. He paid for it. He prayed for it with the blood of his own son. It's precious to him. It's the pearl of great price. He sold everything to purchase it. And he's given, Paul says, you guys, elders, shepherds, the unimaginably extraordinary privilege of taking care of it, feeding it, tending it, caring it, protecting it, leading it, shepherding it. Jesus is the good shepherd. But he calls and he equips some to be under-shepherds, to minister in his name, to minister in his character, to minister in his spirit, to shepherd his flock on his behalf. It's a weighty call, Paul wants them to know. And you need to start, notice what he said, you need to start with yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. Shepherd yourselves first. Why? Can't give what you don't have. Can't lead where you're not going. Can't feed someone what you're not eating. You can't protect people from something that you're opening the door and letting in. And you can't realistically expect people to love and surrender 
if you're not loving others, if you're not yielding to the Lord, if you're not submitting to his spirit, if you're not pursuing sanctification your own self. And we're all familiar with the stories of what happens when shepherds don't, aren't we? What happens when shepherds don't allow themselves to be shepherded by the Lord and by their fellow shepherds? Many of you have listened to the excellent and and yet tragic podcast, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, how that played out in, in one church family. If you're not familiar with it, the short version is when any of us find ourselves so busy in the service of the king that we don't have time for the king, bad things happen. When we're so busy in the service of the king that we don't have time for the king, bad things happen. And that's true for any of us. I have a friend who likes to say, we need to make time to take time with the one who made time. If we don't, we'll get confused about who's ruling and reigning. If we don't spend time with the king, we might get confused and think that the king is us and begin to pursue our will and do it in our strength and do it for our glory. That can happen to pastors. That can happen to parents as we pastor our homes. It can happen to people. It can happen to all of us. It will happen to any of us if we don't Paul's words, take heed. Shepherd the church, he says to his fellow elders, starting with yourselves, but not stopping with yourselves. Shepherd the church, he says, verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now it's your turn, Paul is saying. Now you need to stand in in the gap. Now you need to be ready. Now you need to labor. Now you need to be ready. Because when I leave, Paul is telling them, Brace for attack. Get ready for warfare. And and that only makes sense, right? Because Satan is a finite being. Satan is not equal and opposite to God. Satan is a created being. He's a finite being. Can only be in one place at one time. And he has only a, a limited number of minions, of demons, available to do his bidding. What does that mean? It means he needs to be strategic. It means that he does the math and he calculates where to attack and when to attack and who to attack to do the greatest damage to the kingdom of God. And often, not always, but often, that's at transition points, mesh points. And if you think about your own lives, you know this, we've seen this. Every time we come back from a retreat, we we gather together and remind each other of that. We did it at the conference, several of us as we were leaving Olathe, 
Okay, as we come down the mountain now, as we transition from this context back to our homes, back to our, our, our churches, Satan is going to attack at that transition point. It happens from one leader to another. Um, Pastor Jared who stepped in after Pastor Rick went home to the Lord after he graduated two years ago. Um, he talks about the spiritual warfare that happened at that transition. Patty Height, uh, many of us know from, from the conference she did here several years ago, she asked for prayer, and, 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 and a, a group of us prayed and laid hands on her. But specifically, it was interesting, she, she said, you know, once I'm at a church and I'm there among the brothers and the sisters, and people see me, and they're praying for me, the, the spiritual warfare, the physical attacks even, they lessen. But it's between churches, it's between speaking engagements that the attacks really come. It's in transition. In our own lives, between home and work, between work and home, between this part of our job and that part of our job, between our work week and our day off, isn't that a prime time for Satan to lay in wait? When we move, when you transition homes, crazy spiritual warfare, right? The end of a relationship, the beginning of a relationship, a different season in our physical health. It seems like Satan is behind every bush because he's strategic and he knows that things are most likely to break at the seams, at the welds. And Paul's warning the church at Ephesus, hey, we're coming up on a seam, we're coming up on a transition. And at this transition, Satan's going to pull out all of the stops. He's going to attack you from the outside, he's going to attack you from the inside. Savage wolves are going to come from outside, they're going to try to tear you apart. Do a word search on wolves, when Jesus talks about wolves, he's always talking about false teachers who come in from the outside to divide and confuse and destroy. And that, that, that's no less true in our day, right? In, in Paul's day, teachers had to physically show up as the thing or, or, or at least send, send writings. In our day, we, we import false teaching. Because it's there on YouTube, it's there on Instagram, it's there on, on TikTok. Attacking from the outside. Meanwhile, there's attack welling up from within. Paul's saying there's people in your church right now that are going to go sideways and start twisting scripture and torquing verses out of context. Why? He tells us, verse 30, because they see a vacuum. When I leave, there's, there's going to be a leadership vacuum if, if, you're, if you're not intentional about stepping in. And if you don't step in to fill it, other people are going to try to. And they're going to try to attract a following unto themselves. They're going to say, hey, I'm right. I've got insight. I've, I'm, I'm, follow me into the deeper things. But they'll lead, lead us away from God. And Paul's whole point is, this is why you should look and listen and follow Jesus now more than ever. And, 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 and it's no less true in our day than in Paul's day. Transitions, but even not transitions. How does scripture describe Satan? Hungry lion who's prowling, stalking, lurking, 
studying, waiting for an opening, waiting for a gap where he can strike, waiting for us to let our guard down so he can pounce. And let's go a little further. One of Satan's favorite ways of striking, of dividing, of devouring is to disguise himself as an angel of light. To send minions, to send wolves disguised as sheep. Sheep who look like, sound like, seem like, appear to be following the shepherd, the good shepherd, but in reality have their own agenda. How do we, how do we, how do we, how do we recognize them? How do we unmask wolves for who they are? How do we spot perverse men with their own agendas? Who, who might even not who might not even realize it, who might be beguiled and deceived into doing the will of the enemy. I actually don't think it's hard. Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, what? Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. He says, test all things. To say it that simply, that succinctly, he must mean that we can test and, and know. Test and recognize observe and, and determine what's good and what isn't. By the way, what's good? Jesus. Test all things. Ask, what are we worshiping if we go this way? Who are we serving if we go in this direction? Where is this road leading? Because it's either Jesus or something else. And that's never not true. Anywhere we go, anything we do, it's either leading to Jesus or something else. It's not hard if we ask the question. What's hard is remembering to ask the question. And what Paul is pointing out is we need to be diligent. We need to be ruthless asking. We need to be Bereans, receiving the word with all readiness of mind, Acts 17, 11, but searching the scriptures daily to prove whether this is good or weird to make sure nothing weird slips in. Satan is the great counterfeiter. And we remind ourselves of that most often when we're studying the end times. Because when we look at Antichrist, we remind ourselves anti doesn't just mean against, it means in place of. Antichrist is going to present himself not as against Christ, but as the Christ. He's going to present himself as our Savior, as our Messiah. And the false prophet is going to do a pretty good job imitating the Holy Spirit. Satan's a counterfeiter, and he's a counterfeiter even today. And even today, he's imitating the things of God to undermine the church. He's even, listen, using things that look like God, things, like, things that accord with godliness to undermine the church. What am I talking about? What am I not talking about? Political causes and candidates that espouse family values. Legislature that aligns with our Christian ethics and morality. Diets or plans or self-help programs that are built on biblical principles. Prophetic warning that, that calls out and highlights current events. Charismatic speakers that seem to have a, a, a like-minded worldview. What's wrong with any of that, Patrick? Nothing necessarily. Any of those things might be fine in and of themselves 
if they're things that God has called us to, brought us to. But remember Paul Tripp's line. A man that I admire tremendously who said a lot of things that I think are great. This is perhaps the most important he's ever said. Good things become bad things when they become controlling things. Even good things become bad things when they become heart-controlling things, when they take the place in our hearts that's supposed to belong to God and God alone. Anything that replaces God in our heart as our focus, as the object of our worship, becomes a bad thing. Jesus might lead us to support a particular party or candidate, to lobby for a piece of legislation, to follow a plan or a program he knows will be helpful, to, to heed a prophetic warning or to be inspired by a speaker. But if we find ourselves, listen, if we find ourselves so busy in the service of the king, doing royal things, that it costs us our time with the king, we've got it backwards. If it starts to cost us our prayer time, if it starts to erode our worship, if it starts to compromise our time in the word, if our first best energy and our evangelism is evangelizing people to a place or a program or a plan or a person that's not the person of Jesus, we're doing it wrong. And we'll be doing it wrong. Something will be wrong. Something will happen. Something bad will happen if we're not diligent to watch and warn and test all things. And Paul's point is we need to be diligent like the elders that he's speaking to. We need to be diligent to keep watching and keep warning and keep testing. One thing I didn't mention at the beginning of service, this one says hi, that one. Charlotte Jardine, by the way, sends her love. Um, uh, Rick's, Rick's widow. She's, she's still in the church, serving in the church. She was everywhere during the, the conference. She's doing great. Um, but one thing I didn't mention is the number of people who commented, who went out of the way to talk about the impact that this church has had and the example that this church is being living out verse 29. I, I, I didn't know that anybody knew or cared, but the number of conversations that I had with people. Verse 29, what are you, what are you talking about? Paul says, after my departure, pivoting to application now. Paul's talking about after his departure, but what about after our departure? I'm talking to my fellow 50-somethings, 60-somethings, 70-somethings. 50-somethings, by the way, include Pastor James now. <laughs> Happy birthday, yo. So what happens to the church after James and everyone older than James is gone? Well, that's easy. When we're gone, there won't be a church. Because, Patrick, the rapture takes the church. Maybe you've heard. Jesus comes, brings his bride home. That's true. That's great. What happens if... At, fill out the AARP application, by the way. It'll come in the mail. 
there's some good discounts. Uh, but, but what happens if our, if our departure happens another way? What happens if our generation leaves a more conventional way? What if our generation leaves this earth the same way that absolutely everybody who has ever lived has left, except Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus? What I'm saying is, what if Jesus tarries? <laughs> that can't happen. Have you read about the one world currency and the mark of the beast technology and all of the AI capability and the Iran-Russia-Turkey confederacy? The rapture's imminent. Yeah, I agree. That's true. By the way, it's been true for 2,000 years. The doctrine of imminence says Jesus could come back at any time. And starting 2,000 years ago, people believed and taught that, and they were as certain as we are. Arguably more certain. The Thessalonians thought that they missed it. But for 99 and a half years since Pentecost, it hasn't happened. That doesn't mean it won't. I believe the rapture is real. I know Jesus is coming back. But my generation might not be the generation that sees that. It might be. Nothing preventing it. There's no precondition to the return of Christ for his church, but there's nothing that demands it either. I've got a pastor friend who played professional baseball. He, he puts it this way. You stand on the batter's box, you have to look fastball, because it'll get there first. That's why they call it a fastball. You have to look fastball, but be ready to adjust to the curve. We have to live and love and serve as if Jesus is coming back this afternoon. And we have to pray and plan and prepare as if he won't. Because if our, depart, if our generation departs another way, if my generation departs and leaves the church behind, hungry wolves are going to be waiting. Ambitious men and women are going to rise up. And it's interesting to look around at the number of churches that aren't anticipating that transition that mesh point, that vulnerability where Satan, I promise you, will attack. It's interesting the number of pastors that I talk to who, who, who freely admit, yeah, we're not ready, we got no plan. And, and, I, and I get, I think, a little bit of where that comes from. Groups take on the qualities of their leaders. Our leader was Pastor Chuck, the person that God used to pioneer the Calvary movement. And Pastor Chuck was convinced, I think until like 36 hours before he went home to the Lord, that he would see the rapture. And he, he, he taught it, he counseled it, he planned for it. And so he begat a generation of pastors who have likewise prayed and planned and prepared for the rapture. And that's what was modeled for us. I remember visiting one church I, I, was, I was there to teach, and I always like to get a, a sense of the, you know, the DNA in the community. I like, I like to learn churches. And this particular church, the, the pastor was walking me around, or the assistant pastor was walking me around and introducing me to people. This is our nursery, and this is so-and-so. She served faithfully in the nursery for 30 years. 
and, and we went by the front door. Oh, this is this and such. Rain, snow, sleet, tornadoes. He's at the front door every Sunday with hugs and handshakes, and it's been like that for 25 years. And this is so-and-so who does our sound ministry, and he's, he's, he's served through four different soundboards. <laughs> and my question is, okay, who's, who's coming up behind them? And this was the answer, and this is a true story. Well, we don't really need anyone. I mean, all of those people are good for a few more years. They got enough mileage left, they'll get us to the rapture. But well, what if they don't? <laughs> what if we leave and the church is still here and there aren't people trained and discipled and seasoned to be elders, to carry on the way that Paul is exhorting the elders of Ephesus to carry on, to shepherd the church? Patrick, isn't that the Holy Spirit's job? Yes. What had Paul done in his three years there? There weren't elders when Paul came to Ephesus. Three years later, he had seen the people that the Lord was raising up, the people that the Lord was calling and gifting, and Paul poured into them, invested in them, gave them opportunities to serve, gave them feedback, gave them experience, so that when he left, they were ready to step forward. And it's interesting because there are churches with pastors who are ready to retire, who are just beginning to think about, well, what happens after I leave? There are several more I could name who are refusing to consider the... the I, 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 true story, I talked to a pastor, hey, what's the plan when you leave? Not my problem. <laughs> what about the whole shepherd the flock? Yeah, well, when I'm gone, someone else will have to do it. The Holy Spirit will... I promise you, Satan is, is watching. And he's looking for churches that are going to have a big, sloppy weld, a weak seam, and he's going to attack. Which is why so many people ask me to convey to, to all of you their admiration and their respect and appreciation for the decision that this fellowship made eight years ago to intentionally make a strategic part of our, our, our whole ministry and philosophy to equip the next generation. Because it is an investment. It does cost. Teaching ministry takes time and effort. Saying, hey, come learn what I do. Watch me for a while, and then we'll do it together, and then I'll watch you for a while. That, that's time and energy consumptive. Making room for someone in your ministry. That, that's emotionally costly because you're trading the enjoyment of doing something for the very different satisfaction of equipping someone to do something. We collectively have, have had to change how we measure what's good. How do we evaluate ministry? Because in inviting new people in and in, in, in inviting new people in and giving them a, a presence and a platform, sometimes there's, there's a, a drop-off in quality. It just anybody who's, who's new isn't going to do something as well, probably, as the person who's been doing it for 20 years. That can be frustrating. That can leave us scratching our heads. Are we doing this right? Is this really what God wants? Everything that God does, God does perfectly. Okay, but what about the guys that Jesus trained? 
when he sent the 70 out? Did they get it right every time, all the time? What about the 12? Oh, James and John, they were always between the lines. Peter? <laughs> yeah, what's the Gail Irwin line? They weren't the A-apostles, they were B-apostles at best. Maybe C-plus apostles. <laughs> and yet Jesus called them and gave them opportunities to make mistakes and learn. But it was an investment. It's an investment being willing to let people fail. It's, it, it's an investment knowing that, that where there are wheat, there are, there's always tares. And for everyone that, that, that blooms and blossoms and bears fruit, there will be some that flake out, some that the, the cares of the world choke out, some that bail out and, and, and sometimes say nasty things on their way out. And that's a cost. But the only way to, to see what's weed and what's tear is to plant and nourish and feed and water at a cost. It's a cost being willing to fail. It's a cost being willing to succeed. It's an investment to train people up only to have them go out and the return of their investment happens in a completely different church. And that's happening even today. That's happening right now. And I could keep going, but I know I don't need to. You're here, you see it. You've, you've chosen to be a part of it. You've chosen to invest in it. And, and the, the thing that you, maybe you don't know, and I don't think that I fully know, is how many churches are watching and appreciate it. Churches respect you for it. And if my generation departs by some way other than Skyhook, the next generation will thank you for it. Because, verse 31, you've watched and remembered and heeded Paul's warning. Lord, we thank you for your word that guides us. We thank you for your spirit that equips us. We thank you for the ministry that you've given us to pour into people who will pour into people who will pour into people as long as you tarry. Lord, we pray that your spirit would continue to lead and guide, that we would do this wisely, that we would do this well, that we would do this unto your name. That this would not be an idol, that this would not be service of the king that takes the place of the king. Ministry can be wonderful idolatry. Lord, guard our hearts from that. Make us wise. Use us to shepherd one another that we would test all things, all things, always. And hold fast only to that which is good. That we would cling to you, seeking you, hearing you, obeying you, following hard after you and you alone. 